Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. We'll be looking at Colossians, uh, the book of Colossians. And last week we talked about the year of eternal things. And we talked about the idea that what we want to do as a community, what we want to focus on this year is we really want to focus on the things which don't change. We want, to, we want to help each other as a community to stay focused on those things which are really, really important, truly important, more substantive than the things that are so immediate and in front of us. And, uh, and that we need the community to help us do that because it's really hard to stay focused on those things. And as part of that, we're going to be going through the book of Colossians. And we're going to go through the book of Colossians for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is because Colossians itself as a book really focuses on those eternal things. It really emphasizes some of those major eternal things. But it's also interesting because the reason that Paul does that as he writes to the Colossians is because Colossae was a place which was really struggling with pressures to focus on the things which weren't eternal. It's interesting to think about the fact that Colossae is this little city, and sometime before Paul started writing letters to them, they actually were prosperous and really important. They were an important and prosperous city because they dealt in one trade, which was kind of hip, kind of fashionable, and definitely uh, made them a lot of money, and that was they dealt in dyes. And if you think about it, uh, for a long time, we didn't, they didn't have, back then, the, the, the plethora of materials. If I could turn the Facebook and the Zoom camera for a moment, I would, but I can't, so I won't. Um, you would see all the different colors here in the room, right? And, and we all have these different colored clothes, lots of different uh, shades. And if you think about it, all they really had was wool-colored and sackcloth-colored things. And that if you were really wealthy and you were really prosperous, then you could afford to have those dyed. And then you would have really fancy colors. And that's why things like purple really denote royalty, right? So then you'd really get into it. And Colossae, for a while... They were kind of the hip place. They, they made those dyes, and that meant they were cool, meant they were important, and it meant they were prosperous. For one reason or another, by the time Paul is writing his letter, that's no longer true. Colossae has become irrelevant. Uh, and isn't that the way fashions happen? <laughs> and in fact, they could be, you could argue they were one of the least important cities in the world at that time, as Paul's writing to them. They're small, they're dying, they're dye trade. They're not dying uh, profitably now, they're dying uh, and not making dyes. And so as Paul is writing to them, they're really not that important. In fact, Paul's never even been there. Paul himself did not plant a church there. And so you can imagine the church there, and there's reason to think this is the case based upon the letter he writes. You can imagine that the church there was feeling a little insignificant, a little bit unimportant. Paul had never been there. They had one of Paul's friends, uh, Epaphras, and you're going to have to bear with me. For years I've been saying Epaphras, and I learned that it's Epaphras, so I'm going to try to say it right, but I may not say it right the entire teaching. It's like if you suddenly discovered that my name was pronounced David, you would be very, you know, that would be hard for me more than you. Dad. It's pronounced Dad for some of you. That's correct. Um, Epaphras uh, was a friend of Paul's who planted this church, t- preached at this church, And he's the one who comes to Paul and tells him about some of the issues the Colossians are facing. And what he comes to tell Paul is that that the Colossians are facing a lot of pressure. They're facing pressure to focus on things that are not eternal. And they're facing pressure for a lot of reasons. One is they're facing persecution. They're being persecuted. And that really kind of can draw you to your mortality and your temporary things, right? But they also came from this place where where being hip and fashionable and wealthy was kind of a thing you focused on, and now that's not there. And some of them were tempted to try to get back to that place. But they also were having pressures from what are called the Gnostics. Now, you may have heard me mention this before, because the Gnostics appear frequently as a character in the New Testament. They are a heresy that, that, that went a lot of the same places Christianity went, precisely because Gnosticism is a counterfeit of Christianity. So Gnosticism couldn't exist without Christianity. Christianity absolutely existed before Gnosticism did. But Gnosticism was this this religion that that corrupted some of the basic elements of Christianity. And it seems to be, to me at least, as you read through the New Testament where they appear, that that one of the reasons they had an appeal and grew is because Gnosticism really majored, really had an allure for people who felt 
insignificant. And who has never felt insignificant at some point? (laughs) Gnosticism said to those people who felt less important and less powerful, it said to them that only the very special people know the truths of the Gnostics, and then said, and I'm going to share those truths with you, which means you must indeed be very special. And so it became this, this desire to be part of the in crowd, to be one of those who knew the truths that no one else knew. I think it's the same appeal, to be honest, that there is in conspiracy theories today. And that a lot of conspiracy theories, even, even when they make no sense, they have an appeal because we like to be smarter than people around us. <laughs> we like to be in the know. We like to think that they're fooled and gullible. They're the sheep, but we're the smart ones. And this is sort of how Gnosticism worked. This is how the appeal was. So Paul, is, Epaphras comes to Paul and he says to him, the Colossians are struggling. They're struggling with persecution. They're struggling with materialism. And they're struggling with Gnosticism. And they want to be important. And they want to be significant. And they like the affirmation of Gnosticism. Can you help them stay focused? Paul, can you help them regain their focus on the truly important things, the really eternal things, the things that don't change with fashion and time and circumstance? And so that's why Paul writes the letter, and that's why it's so relevant for us to look at right now, because we also are, as a community, going to try to take this challenge. Last week, I challenged each of you individually. Will you individually... Try to make this a year in which you don't let the world drag you away from the eternal things. Will you try to see the underlying reality under the surface, the, under the matrix, so to speak? Will you try to see the, the reality, the underlying truths that have never changed and let that be your filter through which you see the world instead of letting the world continually drag your face to what's right in front of you and saying this is all there is and this is all that matters. And individually as we make that commitment then as a community, we can help each other stay true to that. We can help each other stay focused on that. And so going through Colossians is one of the ways that I want to help us do that, to see Paul's emphasis, to see how he focuses on those eternal things. Tonight, we're just going to look at just the first part of the first chapter. We're just going to look at the introduction and, and get a sense of where Paul's coming from and what he's saying. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into Colossians. All right. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here tonight. We are grateful to be engaged with your word. We are grateful to be engaged with ancient writings telling us about uh, an infinitely ancient God and an ancient plan which we are part of. We're grateful to know there are things which have always been true and don't change with the fickle nature of our times. We are extremely grateful to know, as we sang tonight, that you are constant and you are only good. And you are always faithful. And never for a moment will you forsake us because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lead us through Colossians this evening. Strike our hearts. Bring us to awe. Help us to see you better. Amen. So just really quickly, Paul, this is a letter. Paul is writing a a letter to the Colossians because Apophis has come to him and said, hey, they need help. And Paul is writing a letter. Why not go visit them? You say, well, travel's not that easy, but also Paul's in prison which makes travel even harder. So Paul is writing to them about eternal things while he's temporarily in prison. (laughs) And he writes a letter, and just so you know, uh, when Paul writes a letter, one of the things we know about Paul is he was very educated. He was an educated Jew and an educated Greek. He actually lived in both worlds. Uh, He was very educated in both worlds. He was on his way to great stardom, to great power, to great prestige, and to great status, when Jesus literally knocked him on his keister one day and said, stop what you're doing and go a different direction. And Paul did. He gave it all up to do what he does now. And so now here he sits in prison, no vestiges of the power, the prestige, the status he had before. And yet fully content, as you'll see, with where God has led him. And he begins to write this letter, but one of the things we know is that because he was very educated, he writes all of his letters in the New Testament follow a certain pattern. Now, think about it. If you're to write a letter today, if you write, I don't know how many people write letters anymore, but occasionally you might write a business letter or you might write some other letter like that. There's a format that you follow, right? If you write a business letter, there's certain forms that you follow. 
And as Paul writes this letter, he follows a sort of standard Greek, what's called epistolary, which just means letter writing. He follows a standard Greek format. A format which includes, which begins always with a greeting, with who's writing, who are you writing to, a greeting, and then thanksgiving for the person you're writing to. I love the fact that the Greek form of letter writing just included being thankful. (laughs) I think that might be a good thing we should include. But it's helpful for us, too, because it lets us know information about this letter that otherwise we might not know. So here we go. Let's jump in and let's see what Paul has to say. He starts off and he says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Let me move. I've got something in my way here from the zoom window. There we go. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So right off the bat, Paul introduces himself as part of the form. He says the person, people really writing this letter are Paul and Timothy. Actually, if you look at Paul's letters, Timothy is often somebody who's included in this. How much did he contribute to the letter? We don't know. Maybe quite a lot. Um, but Paul and Timothy often write together. But there's a couple of other things that are interesting about the way Paul introduces himself, right? He says, I am Paul. I'm an apostle. So those of you who were here before Christmas, remember we talked about the 12 apostles. We got to all of them except Judas. He's coming up later this year. Don't worry, we'll get back to him as we get towards Easter. I'm sure you were really excited to hear that. Um, But so we've been talking about the 12 apostles and we talked about the fact, does anybody remember? I'm gonna give you a little pop quiz opportunity here in this room or on Zoom if you wanna unmute yourself for this moment. What does apostle mean? What's the term mean? It's all right. It means sent out, right? And so we talked about these 12 apostles were these people who'd been sent out with a specific mission to kind of start the church. Well, Paul wasn't one of those 12. Paul would, did not know Jesus when he walked the earth. He knew of Jesus and he didn't like him, but he did not know him when he walked the earth. But Paul had this unusual, this miraculous experience where Jesus reveals him to himself, himself to Paul after the resurrection. And he comes to Paul and says, these people that you're persecuting, Paul is actually literally on his way to kill Christians. And Jesus appears and says, hey, it's me. It's me you're persecuting and you should stop. And so because of that weird experience, Paul becomes an apostle. He has this mission. He's sent out by Jesus just like the other apostles were. So he says to them, I am an apostle. I have been sent out. But he points out I'm an apostle by the will of God, right? It wasn't quite the same way the other apostles were. They were the will of God too, but it was more clear. Jesus went to them directly Here, Paul is after Jesus' resurrection, but he says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. I want you to hold this thought because this is going to be important. That what Paul decides to emphasize in his introduction here is the idea that he has a a purpose. He has a mission. Like uh, the Blues Brothers, if anybody's ever seen that movie, on a mission from God. Paul actually is on a mission from God. And he says, I have a mission. I have it. It's given to me. Um, And we'll find out as we go through Colossians, Paul's going to help them understand that his mission is a little bit different. His calling is a little bit unique from the rest of the apostles. He's called to do something different from the others. And so he says, that's who I am. And because of that mission, because I'm sent out, that's why it makes sense for me to write to you. It's part of my mission. It's part of what I'm called to do. And I'm here with Timothy. But then he refers to Timothy as our brother, which in two short words does does something for all of them. It not only equates Timothy with Paul, puts him on par, right? It's not like Paul is saying, I'm here and my protege is here, although that, that is true. Paul was his, I mean, Timothy was his disciple in some ways, but he doesn't call him that. He doesn't refer to him that way. He says he's, he's our brother. So we're, we're brothers. It's not like I'm the dad and he's the child. We're brothers. But he also says, our brother. So he lifts all the Colossians up to the same place. He says, we're all part of the same family here. So right off the bat, Paul is kind of saying to them, you know all those Gnostics who lord it over you, who say there's this authority, there's people who are smart, there's people who aren't smart. Paul's saying, I just want you to know right away, we're all together in this. I may be an apostle and I have a specific calling and mission, but that doesn't make me closer to God. It doesn't make me better than you. We're just brothers and sisters together in this family. In that short introduction, he says all that. <laughs> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And then he says this. Who's he writing to? He says... To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's that reiteration that we're all family here. And I love this too, because again, remember he's writing to people who need affirmation. They're feeling insignificant. And so this simple introduction fills them with affirmation. First thing is he calls them holy people in Colossae. Now I want to be really clear because we get confused about this. The word holy does not mean well-behaved. That's what we often think. 
Holy means the people who behave in certain ways and do certain things. That's, that's what holy means. Holy doesn't mean that. The word holy means called out. In fact, it's very similar to the word apostle, which means sent out. Do you see that? Holy means called out, set apart. He's saying to them, God has called you to a mission just as he's called me to a mission. The fact that I have this apostleship from God doesn't make me better than you because you also have a mission. Maybe yours isn't to be an apostle. In fact, it isn't. But you have a mission. You also have been set apart by God. You are holy people. Paul calls everybody who's a believer holy throughout scripture, regardless of how they're behaving. Because he wants them to understand that regardless of how they behave, they're called to a specific purpose, whether they're living it or not. And so he says to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. But he also affirms them more than that. He says, I know not only you've been called out, but I know you've been faithful. Look, I know you're struggling and I know the pressures are there, but I know you're faithful. And that's what they need to hear, right? Because one of the things that happens when you're feeling insignificant and this, someone swoops in to tell you how important you are, sometimes you just need to know that the people that, you've, that you respect, that you trust, that they're not disappointed in you. <laughs> and that's what Paul does right off the bat. And then he goes on, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. This is the greeting that would be traditional. In Paul's case, he emphasizes in his greeting, grace that makes you worthy and peace, the sort of sense of that worthiness. He says, this is what I want for you. And then he says this. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Here again, Paul knows they need affirmation. Think of all the things he could have said. When we pray for you, and that's a good thing, that's a little affirmation there, but he could have said, when we pray for you, we always ask God not to let you go astray. We always ask God to keep you from doing something stupid. We always ask God to keep you faithful. All of those might be true. He might actually pray those things. But what Paul wants to emphasize is sometimes he may pray those things, but one thing they can count on, he always prays, is thanksgiving. That no matter what else he's praying for them, he is always grateful to the Father for them. I think that's really cool and affirming. I think that's just kind of an awesome thing to say, to acknowledge, you know, and it's not all grand and glorious. He's not like, I pray for you every second or even every morning at four o'clock from four to six. He doesn't make any grandiose promises about the prayers. He just says, when I pray for you, one thing I always do is thank God for you. And he goes on to tell them why. He says, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. Look, he says, I know you're struggling. I know there's all these pressures. But when I pray, I am just thankful that even in all those pressures, you still believe in God. You still believe God. You still live lives of faith. And I'm grateful you still love each other. Let's be honest. Do we think they were doing this per perfectly? Of course they weren't. I'm sure they weren't. I'm sure they weren't. I don't think he's lying to them. I think they're doing it, but they're not doing it perfectly. But he wants them to know he always thanks God for their faith and their love. And if they're wrestling with that, if they're struggling with that, if they're thinking, is it really that important to hear that is affirming and it is helpful. But he goes a little bit further. He says something very interesting about this too. He says, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. And then he says this, the faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Now, this is interesting. I, we've talked last week. Remember that last week when we talked about making this the year of eternal things, three things we talked about focusing on were faith, hope, and love. Not because of this passage, but because in Corinthians, Paul says those are three things we know are eternal. Knowledge will pass. Glory, you know, sort of public applause will pass. All these things will pass. But faith and hope and love will be forever, he says. And so Paul here, he mentions those three things, faith and love and hope. But one of the questions from last week is, how do we do that? How do we focus? How do we make this the year of eternal things? How do we become people of faith and love like the Colossians are? And he actually gives us a little hint here. I don't know that this is a magic formula, but I think it's a really relevant, practical thing. He says their faith and their love spring from their hope. So he tells us if, if faith and love is lacking, maybe you need to focus on the hope. Well, what is the hope that's stored up for them in heaven? What does he mean about that hope? Well, here's what he means. First of all, hope in scripture is not wishful thinking or simply desire. Hope doesn't simply mean something I want to happen. Hope is confident expectation. 
Hope is, I believe this will happen. I know this will happen. I've, I've used this analogy before. We just passed through Christmas. It's the difference between hoping that you get a specific thing for Christmas that you may or may not get, that's something you desire, or hoping that Christmas will come, which, barring something pretty radical, we can be confident is going to happen. And so he says you have some confidence. There's something that you are confident about. There's some hope that you have, some expectation of the future, stored up in heaven, he says, something related to heaven. You have this hope, and it's from this hope that your faith and your love spring. Your confidence in what lies ahead for you in heaven results in a faith and an ability to trust God for what's now, in an ability to believe that God is good, to believe who God is, to trust who he is. And it also somehow leads you into an ability to love, laying down your privileges for the needs of others. How does hope lead to this faith and love? I think there's a lot of answers to that. But we're going to look at that a little bit as we keep going through the introduction here. And it is at least something for us to consider this year as we as a community want to become people of faith and love. Maybe we need to look at our hope first. Because it looks at least here for the Colossians as if faith and love spring from that. Well, he does tell us what they're hoping for or what their hope is in. He says the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. The true message of the gospel. Why is he emphasizing that? Because they're receiving a corrupted message of the gospel from the Gnostics. (laughs) And he says, but you already know this. You've already heard it. You don't need something new. You don't need something radical. You don't need the Gnostics to come and tell you special knowledge. You already know everything you need to know in the gospel. And the word gospel is good news. That's literally what the word means. So he's saying there's some true message of the good news, which they have hope in, and their hope in this true message of the good news is what leads to their faith and their love. Look, this is one of those things you expect a pastor to say. And because of that, it loses power a little bit when I say it. It's like when you're, you know, there's a, there's a story of a, uh, a, a child, he's in Sunday school and there's a Sunday school teacher and she's, she's talking to them and she's about to give them a lesson on, you know, on, on being productive and saving up. She's giving them like a moral lesson. And so she wants to talk to them about squirrels and squirrels gathering nuts. And so she's trying to get the kids to, tell, to, to give her the answer about a squirrel. So she says, what is that animal that's got a bushy tail and it gathers nuts and, or acorns and, you know, lives in trees and scampers up and down and you know, what is that animal? And all the kids are just quiet. They're just kind of staring at her in confusion. And she keeps asking the question and she keeps describing it more and more. And finally, one of the kids just kind of finally bashfully raises his hand and she says, yes, Timmy, what? And Timmy says, well, I know the answer has to be Jesus, but it really sounds like a squirrel. <laughs> and that's because that's what we expect, right? In church, we expect the answer to be Jesus. Well, the problem is for me as a pastor, is that the answer really is Jesus, not a squirrel. (laughs) That's what Paul is saying here. The answer actually is the gospel. It actually is the true message of the good news. If, If we want to be people of faith and love, it's pinning our hope on the good news of Christ, on the grace of God. Here's one thing I want to say to you, and I want you to take this really seriously, at least consider it seriously. I want you to really think about this this year. It is very easy for us to see the problems and pitfalls of obsession with almost anything, right? If you're obsessed with a particular TV show or a particular person or a particular technology or a particular idea or a particular job, it almost always goes awry because it can't live up to the hype. And, And there is a certain sense in which moderation in all things is good advice, but not in the gospel. I really want to say this to you. I want to say you cannot be too obsessed with the gospel this year. I want you to try to prove me wrong. I I would love that. If you would become so obsessed with the good news of the grace of Christ, I just want you to try to overdo it. I want you to let go of the idea of moderation. Now, let's be clear. Obsession with the gospel is not obsession with church. Obsession with the gospel is not obsession with religion. 
Obsession with the gospel is not obsession with doing the right things or making yourself perfect. In fact, those are kind of the opposite of the gospel. And that's why Paul says the true message of the gospel. See, the false message of the gospel that they were receiving from the Gnostics was one which did not produce faith and love because it didn't produce confident expectation and hope of heaven and perfection. Instead, what the Gnostic gospel was giving them was burden and guilt and a sense of inferiority. They found themselves perhaps pinballing between self-righteousness on the days they did well and self-loathing on the days they didn't. And I want to say to you, if obsession with the gospel, if focusing on the gospel brings you guilt or burden or pins you between self-righteousness and self-loathing, that you're obsessed with the wrong gospel. That you need to become obsessed with the true message of the gospel. You cannot go wrong if that is what you do this year. And I think from what we read here, it's just possible that you'll gain a confident expectation about the future. And this confident expectation will also lead you to a greater faith and trust in who God is now and a greater love for the people around you. And wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, what? who doesn't want to be part of a community of faith and hope and love? <laughs> So Paul wants to take this entire letter to clarify what it means to be obsessed with the gospel. So if that's where you are right now, you're like, well, that sounds great, but how do I do it? Well, welcome to Colossians. We're going to explore that. But that is what he's talking about. He goes on and he says, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. So in the same way that I'm grateful for you because I see your faith and your love springing from this hope and the true message you've received, guess what? It's happening all over the world. And in Paul's time at his moment, that was 100% true. It is amazing if you think about how quickly and how, how dramatically things went from 12 people to a Christianity which has shaped and changed the whole world. And if you don't believe that, look at our calendars. We measure them by Jesus. How many years since Jesus walked the earth? That's what it is, 2021. Two. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but make no mistake. Thank you. Make no mistake, it's still true. It's still true all over the world and historically has always been true that the gospel produces fruit and grows. That when people hear the true message of the good news, it changes them and it changes the world and it has been doing it for 2022 years and will continue to do so. You may look even in America and say, gosh, I just don't see the power of the church. Well, guess what? Your vision is way too narrow. There are parts across the world right now that are experiencing amazing revivals in Christianity, amazing renewals. In Asia and Africa, there are amazing things happening. And I submit even here in America, there's a renewal, there's a refreshing, there's a winnowing and a, tr and a weeding and a pruning, but there's a revitalizing of the church that's happening in that as well. The true message of the gospel is becoming aware to us as we, as we kind of strip aside or God strips aside everything else we've wrongly connected to it. God, even when we mess it up, God will not let his good news go unheard. Even when we screw up, even when we use the gospel for manipulation and exploitation, even when we preach the wrong gospel, even when we burden people with guilt and labor and religion, God still causes the gospel to bear fruit among people and will continue to do so. And so for us, let's get on that train. <laughs> let's be on board with that. Let's make sure that we focus on the true message of the gospel and cling to that hope. Not the hope of another guru or another politician or another religious leader, but the hope of Christ in us. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. The hope of, of a renewed creation. We'll look at that next week. The hope of heaven, which Paul mentions today. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. It's all about truly understanding God's grace. Not about figuring out how you're going to be better. Not about figuring out how you're going to impress God. Those are two losing propositions right there. You'll never accomplish either of those. 
but to truly understand God's grace. How much he loves you because he's a God who loves. How much he has provided a way for you because he wants to provide a way for you. How much he has flung open the doors and welcomed everybody, regardless of their own worldly power, to be part of his kingdom. He goes on, he says, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. I just love again here that Paul is emphasizing, you didn't need me to learn the gospel. Right? Paul, the great church planter, the great evangelist, and he says, you didn't even hear it from me. You didn't hear it from Timothy. You heard it from Epaphras. Unlike the Gnostics who say, you need me to tell you what's true. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Now, what's his prayer? Well, we know the one thing he always prays is thanksgiving. And in case I haven't said it, because I think it is so cool that he does this, let me just take a moment and say that I am so thankful for you guys and you guys and you guys. I think our community is amazing. I think that what happens in our focus groups is unlike any community I've been a part of. And I've been a pastor for 32 years. And I think what happens in our focus groups where you guys do help each other to focus on faith and love and hope, I'm so blessed that that is happening. I had a vision for this and had no idea, really, if anybody else would share the vision. (laughs) I'm so grateful that you guys are part of it. And I'm grateful that you're here. And I'm grateful you're in your groups. And I'm grateful for our focus group leaders. And I'm grateful for every one of our members. I'm grateful for all the brothers and sisters that are part of Focus Church. So thank you. And know that when I pray for you, and I also make no promises that it happens every day from four to six in the morning. In fact, I'll promise you it absolutely does not. But I do want you to know when I pray for you, I absolutely pray with gratitude and thanksgiving. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, but he tells us more of his prayer. He tells us this. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Paul says, I'm constantly praying that you will know God's will. And not just that you'll know it, but you'll know it with all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. The only caveat there is that the Spirit gives. Is it possible the Spirit won't choose to give you all wisdom and understanding? I think it is. But he's praying that you can get as much as the Spirit will give you, and I think that's much more than most of us receive or look to or count on. But I also want you to think again about this approach of Paul, how different this is from so many leaders that we've seen over the years. I remember, and it was a joke, I remember in my past one of my one of my leaders joking, he said, God has an incredible plan for your life and I'm going to tell you what it is. <laughs> and that was a joke, but it was a joke that was funny because that was awfully close to what people were saying in earnest. <laughs> and Paul doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't say, I'm going to tell you what God's will is. He says, I pray every day that God will tell you what God's will is. But he goes further. I want to be clear. Paul uses the word knowledge, and it's important we understand how Paul uses the word knowledge because it's not the way that you and I tend to use the word knowledge. We think of knowledge as a head thing. It's an academic thing. It's, I now know this. I, I know these words. We have knowledge of mathematics. And so we think of knowledge of God's will as what are, the, what are sort of the, the points of his will? What's the, what's the five-point plan that God has for me? But that's not actually what Paul is saying here. The word knowledge, when, God use, when Paul uses the word knowledge, the Greek word knowledge, what he's often talking about is an experiential, intimate, felt conviction. He doesn't just want them to know about God's will. He wants them to know God's will. Right? We talk about the difference between really knowing something and knowing something. You can know God is good, but isn't it a different thing when you really know God is good? <laughs> When you experience it and you feel it, that's what Paul is praying for. Paul is praying the Spirit will give them not just understanding and wisdom, but that that understanding and wisdom will also give them intimate knowledge of God's will. Really, relational knowledge of God. So that they can know His will. 
And then he says this, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And then Paul lists four benefits of knowing the will of God in this way. Four benefits that please God. The benefits of such knowledge. All right? He says this. Number one, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, I think it's pretty clearly implied here that Paul means bearing fruit in every good work that you're called to. In fact, I think Paul would say that a good work you're not called to isn't a good work. (laughs) It's just you being nosy or officious. I think that the fact is he believes that God walks you through the good works he's called you to and that you'll find that work to be fruitful. You will have a life of fruitful goodness as you experience and know the will of God, as you stand on that confident expectation and hope and faith and love, as you become these people who are obsessed with the gospel to the point that you know intimately the will of God, you will be fruitfully good. Man, I know a lot of people who just, that's all they want. I just want to be fruitfully good. It may not look like you expect. The fruit may not be what you thought it was supposed to be, but you can count on it being true that as the Spirit fills you with wisdom and understanding and you are filled with the knowledge of God, you will be fruitfully good. He goes on. He says, number two, growing in the knowledge of God. There's that word knowledge again, and it's the same word. He doesn't mean growing in your understanding of theology. He means growing in your relational knowledge of God. That you know this God who is too good to be known. That you know this God who's beyond understanding, but you know him. That's the prayer. That's the benefit. Knowing him more thoroughly. Number three, he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. I love that. Who doesn't want that? Uh, The sentence doesn't stop there though. I stop there because I want you to see something. But if you stop here, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, and just ask yourself, don't answer out loud, but if God said to you, I'm going to give you all of my power and all my glorious might, and then I ask you, what would you use it for? There's probably a lot of things that come to mind. I'm not going to say, I'm assuming they're good. <laughs> Maybe someone here wants to take over the world, but, but I'm assuming they're good. But you know what? He says something really amazing. He says being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Here's what I want you to think about this. Think about this the other way. Have you ever thought about how hard it is to have endurance and patience sometimes? I mean, it's easy to have endurance and patience when nothing bad is happening. Am I right? (laughs) But it's precisely when things are difficult. Endurance and patience is hard, but we undersell how hard it is. I want you to hear this. We undersell how hard endurance and patience is so that we do two things. Number one, we minimize those people in our midst who have great endurance and patience. We assume they're just kind of hitting the minimum level. And then we are really hard on ourselves when we don't have endurance and patience. But notice that Paul here says, what does it take to have endurance and patience? All the power of his glorious might. (laughs) Right? I said to you, what would you do with all that power? And Paul's answer is, man, you just need that power just to endure. You just need that power to be patient. I honestly think we underestimate how much of a superpower this is to the rest of the world. To see you endure and be patient, it's striking. It's the kind of thing that Paul says leads people to see us as stars shining in the heaven with all glory. (laughs) And we think, oh, that's just whatever. No, it's a big deal. And he says to the Colossians, I know how hard it is. And I'm praying for God's glorious power and might that you can endure and be patient because I know it takes that much work. And then he goes further. After endurance and patience, he says, and giving joyful thanks to the Father. Not only does that power give you the ability to endure and be patient, but it leads you to give joyful thanks to the Father. I just just want to ask you this. Do you, forget about yourself for a moment. Do you just want to hang out with this person? This person who's fruitfully good. You know, people look at them and say, that person is just a good person. The person who is intimately familiar with God. 
The person who is full of patience and endurance and at the same time joyful and grateful. Do you want to hang out with that person? Now ask yourself, if you thought it was possible, would you like to be that person? Well, I would. (laughs) And I'd love to be in a community filled with that person. And it all comes back to this obsession with the gospel. This person is a superhero. Please understand that. This person in the world changes the world. This person in the world takes a stand against evil, which makes a difference. This person in the world is a superhero. The world looks at people like this as supermen and superwomen. Imagine if a year of eternal things would produce in us, in our community, these things, hope and faith and love and purpose and fruit and knowledge of God and patience and endurance and joy and gratitude. We can be a community. We're promised as we obsess on the gospel, these are the things we can be. But please be clear, what is not promised? What did Paul tell the Colossians would not necessarily come? He didn't say it wouldn't come. He didn't say it would come. He just said there's no promise for it. What are the things he does not mention? Popularity, riches, fashionability, significance in a worldly sense. All the things that they're looking for, perhaps. He doesn't promise them that. But honestly, if the choice is that or the other, doesn't this really look better? Do you want to be significant and miserable? Do you want to be insignificant and joyful? I mean, really. And you may be insignificant in the world, but if you're fruitfully good and you have an intimate knowledge of God and you're enduring and you're patient and you're joyful and you're grateful, I guarantee you, you aren't really insignificant in the world. That's what this letter is about, these unshakable things, these eternal things. And so I ask you, as I did last year, who's with me? Who wants to produce this community this year? Again, I'm grateful that we're doing it, but who wants to see it happen bigger? (laughs) Who wants to make this the year of eternal things? I do. And whether you join me or not, I'm going to push that way all year. I'm going to try to help you obsess on the gospel of grace and the goodness of the good news. And Paul returns to the idea of the gospel immediately. He describes what the good news is. What is this good news that is their hopeful confidence? What is this they have confident expectations of? He says this. Uh, He said, just to pick up where we were, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who, the Father, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Holy people in the kingdom of light. I don't know those of you who are fantasy readers or epic story readers, but that just sounds like an epic fantasy thing at the moment, right? We're one of the holy people in the kingdom of light. But, but, but what's the point here? What qualifies you to share in that inheritance? Is it because you know some special esoteric knowledge nobody else knows, as the Gnostics claimed? Is it because you've been taught by the right mentor and the right person? Is it because you've labored so hard? Is it because you've proven yourself more worthy than others? What qualifies you to be an inheritor? What qualifies you to be one of these holy people, these called out people in the kingdom of light? The Father qualifies you. God has qualified you. That's it. This is the obsession of the gospel of grace is to be obsessed with the idea that God has qualified you. Because if you're not obsessed with the fact that God has qualified you, you will become obsessed with qualifying yourself. And that is a losing proposition every time. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. This is not aspirational. This is true. This is not God wants me to to qualify in the inheritance. This is God has qualified you. This is the reality. This is not something you aspire to. You may aspire to become obsessed with it. You may aspire to live as if this is true. You may aspire to understand it better, but you don't aspire to qualify. You do qualify. God qualified you. That's the good news. God has made you an inheritor of the kingdom of light. 
The Father has flung open the doors. By the way, I love the fact that Paul says the Father because we get weird ideas sometimes about the Trinity and we feel like Christ is the good loving guy and the Father's mean and Christ had to persuade the Father to qualify us, but it says here the Father qualified us. He's on your side. Every member of the Trinity is on your side. The Father has flung open the doors. I've said this before. I think this is so important for us to understand. In our culture, in our time, we really need to grasp this perspective. We tend to think of the gospel, when we think of it as exclusive, it feels fair and unjust. Sometimes unbelievers will make this argument. They'll say, why is it that I have to believe in Jesus? Isn't that unfair? Doesn't that exclude people who don't believe in Jesus? You're, You're seeing that incorrectly. What is really happening in the gospel is that Jesus says over and over to us, the gospel is the only thing in all of your experience in which you do not have to have a certain level of power to enter. The powerless are welcome because every single person gets in for the exact same reason. There's no favoritism. There's no partiality. There's no nepotism. There's not a point where Jesus says, well, I'm going to let you in because you're good at this, or I'm going to let you in because you're talented in this way, or I'm going to let you in because you have this much money, or I'm going to let you in because you're this gender or this race or this person. There's no favoritism in the gospel. It's not exclusive. It's completely wide open because there's no backstage. There's no back door. Everybody gets to heaven the exact same way through the blood of Jesus, through the good news of the gospel of grace. He has flung the doors open. And strangely, some people say, I don't like the doors. And God says, I can't make a special loophole for you. Everybody gets in the same way. Truth is, I made a special loophole for all of you. Take it or leave it. But God earnestly hopes you take it. So do I. The good news is that the door is open. The good news is that the only border in the immigration from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light is whether you choose to cross or not. He goes on. He stresses this. He says, for he has rescued us. You didn't rescue yourself. He rescued you. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The Father has qualified you. The Father has flung open the doors and the Father has redeemed you. See, what's amazing about the gospel is not just that Jesus created a loophole for everybody. I shouldn't have even said it that way because that isn't the truth. What actually happened is through the blood of Christ, God has qualified you so you don't need a loophole. God has redeemed you, has changed you, has made you holy, has called you to something else. See, once upon a time, you were people of the temporal world. That's all you had. The fickle, changing fashions and circumstances of the world in front of you. But through the blood of Christ, he has rescued you from the dominion of darkness, brought you into the kingdom of the son he loves and the kingdom of light, and he has qualified you to be there. He's the one who says you should be there. And it's weird for you to argue with him. He's not only forgiven you sins, Forgiven your sins, he's qualified you. He's not waiting for you to do that. He's only waiting for you to say yes. And if you've said yes, then he's not even waiting for that. This is the reality. Again, these are not aspirational. We're not looking to cross from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light. It has happened. He has rescued us. He did not just point the way and say walk across. He grabbed us and took us across. They're not aspirational for the believer. They're the reality of your life. They may or may not be aspirational for the unbeliever, the one who's refused to say yes to Jesus when he came to rescue them, but they are unattainable because the only door you can enter through is to be rescued by Jesus. It's not a matter of fairness. It's a matter of ability. Look, if if you're in a POW camp and the Marines come to rescue you, are you going to say, I don't want the Marines to rescue me. I want the Navy to rescue me. No, you're going to say, thank you. <laughs> and and it isn't, it isn't, it's just not, that's the rescuer. You take the rescuer you got. Because 
No one else is looking to rescue you. Sorry. And no one else has the ability to rescue you. All the epistle writers agree that this hope, this confident expectation that we are citizens now of the kingdom of light and will someday see the kingdom of light, that we will someday come home, that we will be there. All the epistle writers believe it's this confident expectation, not just some idea of, of clouds and, and you know eternal cotton candy and ice cream or whatever small pictures we have of heaven. That sounds pretty good to me. That's why I said it. But, but whatever small pictures we have of heaven, not because of that, but because, because our expectation is we will be coming home. A place we belong, not being shoehorned into a place we don't belong. It's true that right now we're still in the world, they're not of it. It's, it's kind of that point in the story where the rescuers have come, but we haven't actually left the prison camp yet because we're actually we're grabbing all those other people and helping them get out as well. But the difference is, unlike in a movie, we know for sure the rescue is successful. We don't have any question about it. We're simply staying around to tell others of the open doors, which the guards haven't even noticed. And so we have purposes as ambassadors and as rescuers. In some ways, it's the only purpose. What's more important than that? The Lord's return is future. Future. The arrival at our new home is future. But the reality of our citizenship is now. And our confidence, our confidence in this leads us to trust in the God of goodness more. Our confidence in this gives us the ability to lay aside our privileges and indeed our very lives for the lives of others. So what I want to invite you to do, what I want to challenge you to do this year, what we're going to do as we walk through Colossians together is I just want to challenge you to know the gospel. You may say, I know the gospel. Or you may say, I don't like the gospel. Or you may say, what's the gospel? I don't know where you are in this. My challenge is know the gospel. As part of our community, I want you to know the gospel. And I want you to take whatever the next step is for you. And I want you to be obsessed about doing it. I can't make you be obsessed. I'm just telling you what would be great. <laughs> but if you can't be obsessed, that's okay. Just take some effort. But consider the possibility that obsession with the gospel this year might actually produce in you and produce in us people of faith and hope and love and joy and gratitude. And ask yourself if that's worth it. Because I think it is. So I will say that for the Focus Church, I'm so happy about our, our diversity. We have genuine diversity in our church of beliefs, of convictions, of thoughts, of ideas, of approaches to life. I love it. I love it. And even within that, we have diversity of where people are at on their faith walk. Some people haven't stepped on the path yet. Some people are on the path, but really tentatively. Some people are on the path and have been walking it for years. And I love that because it means that, that, that Jesus is touching people in all sorts of different places in their lives. And that's fantastic. We all learn from each other that way. We're all brothers and sisters. Where you are in the path doesn't make you, by the way, closer to God or more important than anybody else. We are brothers and sisters in this. We are in this together, but we're walking this path. We're all at different places. And so I want to ask you to evaluate for yourself. There are no church police. I will not call and check up on what your answers are to these questions. But I want you to think about it. And in our church, I've noticed that we have the following sort of approaches. And again, I'm super glad we do. I think it's a sign of a healthy community. And I hope we always do. I hope we're always having people come in at the new levels, at different places and stages on the road of faith. But if you're interested in a fruitful year, if a year of hope and faith and love and joy and gratitude and purpose sounds good to you, consider where you are on that path and how you can take a step forward. And here's one of the ways that I've kind of been thinking about it. Number one, in our church, we have some of you who are just observing. You're observing the gospel. You know what? Kudos to you. Thank you for doing that. Part of the reason the community exists, the church exists, is to create an incarnational sense of who Jesus is so that you can, in fact, observe. And I want you to keep staying, and I want you to keep observing. And if you never move from observing, you're still welcome. But some of you are just observing. You're kind of watching the community. You're curious, maybe just a tiny bit, maybe a lot, maybe almost not at all. But you know, and you know who you are. I'm not judging any of you. If you're an observer, you know you're an observer. 
You're not really part of it. You're kind of standing back and you're looking at it. And here's what I want to say to you. Consider this year doing more than observing. This year, learn about it. Learn about the gospel. I mean, really learn about it. I know lots of people who claim that they've, they've made decisions about the gospel. It doesn't make sense to them or they don't like it or it's mean or it's unjust. Most of those people haven't actually taken the time to learn about it. You learn about it. You've been observing it. Now step back. And if you have questions, ask them. Ask them. If, if, if you have concerns, express them. I hope at this point, those who are in our focus groups know, we're okay with that. Not only are we okay with that, we, we promote it. Because the questions are questions, the concerns are concerns, and hiding them doesn't serve anybody at all. Not you and not us. So I would say move from observing to learn about it. Ask questions. If you're a book reader, read books. I've got 100 books I'd be happy to give you that will help you learn about the gospel. But I'm only giving you 100 books if you like to read them all. Otherwise, just a couple. Ask questions. Explore it. Pray about it. Think about it. Read, read people like C.S. Lewis who are very articulate and clear about the gospel. Read Paul. Read the Bible. Really learn about it. Take a step forward. Maybe you decide you'll learn about it and you'll decide it's not for you and you'll move on. But you made the effort this year to learn about it and prove me wrong and went on. And I say prove me wrong because my experience is most people who really make an effort to learn about the gospel fall in love with it. So give it a shot. You got nothing to lose. Some of you have been learning. Some of you have been learning about the gospel. You've been asking questions. You've been reading. You've been engaged in the discussions. You've been in a focus group. A lot of the observers haven't even been in the focus group. A lot of people in the, in the focus groups, you are learning. You have been learning. You know a lot more about the gospel than you did before. You've inquired. But there is this barrier to how far you can go academically. You can learn everything about the gospel, but remember Paul's prayer wasn't greater intellectual understanding but greater intimate knowledge. And I want to challenge you, now it's time to begin to experience the gospel. I would even say to enjoy it. If you're an observer, go from observing to learning. If you're a learner, go from learning to enjoying it. How do you do that? Well, for most of us, this happens through the community. Embrace the love and the faith and the hope you see in others for its benefit in your life, if not for yourself. I'm convinced Paul frequently tells people in the communities who aren't believers I hope that you're enjoying our community. He never is resentful about that. He's like, experience it. Taste the Holy Spirit, he says. The author of Hebrews speaks of people who are kind of in the community, but they not, not, haven't embraced it yet. He speaks of them as having tasted the Holy Spirit. Taste. Taste, says the Lord, and see that I am good. Enjoy it. Dive in a little bit more. Seek an intimate knowledge. Try to experience what we're looking at. We invite you to freely enjoy with us the fruit of a gospel and grace-centered community. We don't want to withhold any of that from you. Give yourself permission to enjoy it this year. Some of you have been doing that already. Some of you have found blessing in the community. And some of you, even in your own soul, have begun to find the embers of comfort and hope and a spark of something which might be joy. But you still perceive the gospel as someone else's gospel. I mean, you are living in it. You are experiencing it. When I talk to you, I hear you say things that sound like you believe it but you still distance it as if this is someone else's gospel. Your parents, your friends, your spouse, your group leader. And for you, I want to say this is the year you've learned about it, you've enjoyed it. This is the year to stop seeing this faith as someone else's faith. Maybe this is the day for you move from enjoying the gospel to owning it. Just own it. I mean, I really believe in our community, there are people that, for everything I can tell, they believe the gospel, but they haven't quite owned it yet. They, they say things that I think they believe, and I believe they believe. And if you ask me, I'd say they're probably believers, but they still haven't owned it yet. They haven't said to themselves, I believe, let alone to anybody else. I know that some of you are afraid your faith isn't pure enough or strong enough, or large enough, that you're not good enough. Let me please tell you, there's not a single person in this community whose faith is pure enough, big enough, strong enough, or is good enough. That's not how we got here. 
Not a single person. Not one of us. Ever. And Paul and Jesus never emphasize purity or strength of faith. Ever. That might surprise you, but that is the truth. Jesus, in fact, emphasizes the size of the faith being extremely small and yet being powerful. You don't have to work yourself up into a lather. It's simply, for many of you, I truly believe this. It's simply saying, you know what? I already believe this. I just need to stand up and say to myself, yeah, I already believe this. You may even intellectually have questions. You may even be challenging yourself. Why do you believe this? There might be other ways, but you say to yourself, but I do. (laughs) Well, own it. Own it. And let us know you own it so we can celebrate it with you. Because all we want to do is rejoice in that with you. Purity and power are God's job, not yours. Just think to yourself, and you realize, you know what, I do believe Jesus died for my sins. I do believe the grace of God has saved me. I'm actually counting on these things to be true. I kind of think they are. Well, own it. That's as good as the rest of us got. (laughs) We'll celebrate with you. We long to rejoice with you in the reality of your changed situation in Jesus. Just own it. And let us own it with you. And then many of you do own it, of course. There's a lot of you that own it. I've known some of you for years. You've owned it over and over. You, you, you own it. It's a faith. It's your faith. It's not someone else's faith. You believe it. You have the hope. You're there. You are what we would call believers. Disciples, perhaps, even. You've said to yourself and others that you are a Christian. You are a believer. You accept the good news and you rejoice in it. But for you, I also say you're not done either. Now, again... I'm not calling you to do something else which will make you more worthy. You're already qualified for the inheritance. But I do have a challenge for you. To step up the ladder of obsession, if you will. (laughs) So you already own it. Well, then I want you this year to insist on it. I don't want you to let anything or anybody else distract you from the good news. When somebody tells you that the good news isn't as good as you think, I want you to insist that they're wrong. You don't have to do it to them. I just mean to yourself. When the world around you insists that all you've got is what you see around you and just your circumstances, I want you to insist that you will not believe that. Not to me, to yourself. I want you to insist on the grace. Paul says it this way, stand firm and fight for the freedom which Christ died for in you. Don't let people drag you down. You're going to mess up this year. I understand that. And in our focus groups, as always, mess up in public. That's what we do in focus church. (laughs) We mess up in full view. And that's okay. I will. You will. We all will. But I think our goal this year is obsession. And if you own it, I want you to move closer to obsession. I want you to insist on it. Do not go gently into that good night, to paraphrase. And in this case, the good night is just drudgery. It's not death. It's okay. In fact, your life, says Paul, as we'll see later, is hidden in Christ. It's hidden. So insist on finding it. Insist on finding it there and nowhere else. Don't let someone else lure you off to something else because it's not there. Insist on it. Put all your eggs in one basket. This is the year. Put all your eggs in one basket. This is the day, says Hebrews. Put all your eggs in one basket. Because there's only one basket that can hold them all. Let this be the year you not only own the gospel, but insist on it when anyone else threatens to discourage or pull you down. This fight to stand on grace, to count only on the gospel of Christ, it never ends so long as we live in this world where the curse pulls against us. Now, nothing can take you from your salvation. Nothing can take you out of Christ's hand. But let it be the year you insist on knowing that. Wherever you are this year, let it be the year of eternal things. Let this be a year where you're focused on the magic and the depth of the universe where it really is. Let this be the year you take a step forward, whether it's from observing to learning, from learning to enjoying, from enjoying to owning, from owning to insisting. And if you're insisting, God will lead you to what your next step is. Maybe it's obsessing. I don't know. (laughs) But keep doing it. And as we go through Colossians, I think Paul will help you do that as well. That's our goal. That's where we're going. That's what we want to do. And at the beginning of Colossians, that's what Paul is talking about. He is saying to us, stand on the gospel, cling to that, know that you're qualified, 
and cling to that gospel of grace because that hope will lead to faith and love. Most churches believe in the value of small groups but a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.